is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. While modern craft beer is still unfortunately a male-dominated industry struggling to grow out of its gender biases and outright gender discrimination, brewing has not always been the assumed domain of men. Throughout history, in different cultures and at different times, women have been the primary brewers or at least equal partners in brewing. This was true at times when beer was primarily brewed in the home and seen as a domestic task, as well as at times and places when brewing was a sacred or commercial task. One particular era of brewing history during which women played a significant role in the trade was during the medieval time period, when brewing in Europe was a small-scale commercial industry. Female brewers known as alewives could make a living by selling their extra home-brewed beer or by brewing exclusively for trade. In recent years, associations have been made between depictions of medieval alewives and our modern-day image of witches, from pointy hats to cauldrons and black cats to broomsticks. The story gets passed around by barstool historians that modern iconography of witches comes from these medieval alewives, and as often happens, these stories have morphed into accepted popular history. But is there any truth to these stories? Was there ever a connection between female brewers and witchcraft, and how did this story get started? Dr. Christina Wade is a historian and archaeologist currently writing a book about the beer history of Ireland from medieval to modern craft beer. She is also the president and founder of the Ladies Craft Beer Society of Ireland and a beer historian, co-host, and editor at the Beer Ladies podcast. She also writes fascinating historical accounts of the role of women in beer at her website, Brachiatrix. I'll link to her work in the show notes. As a BJCP-certified beer judge, Dr. Wade knows modern beer just as well as she knows the history of how it got here, and I reached out to her recently to shed some light on the romance and the reality of the connection between medieval alewives and modern depictions of witches. I started out by asking her about the project she's currently involved with. So right now, of course, I'm involved in the Beer Ladies podcast with an amazing group of women. So I'm really excited about that. We're on a break at the moment, but we come back in the end of August. And I'm currently hoping to finish this year a book about beer history in Ireland from medieval to modern. It's called Filthy Queens, the History of Beer in Ireland. And it's called that because an English army captain referred to alewives in Dublin as filthy queens and said a whole lot of horrible things about them. So I thought it was kind of a perfect title. So one of the common pieces of beer mythology that has gotten passed around on, you know, barstool to barstool over the last five or 10 years is the connection between the medieval alewife and the modern iconography of witches. Can you explain a little bit of the origin of those connections? We'll talk in just a moment about why those aren't actually true, but can you just explain some of the connections people do draw between those? Yeah, so the myth sort of has two strands. So the first strand is that the pointy black hat, uh, the broom, 
and the cauldron and the cat all come from medieval alewives. I believe the argument is the broom comes from the ale steak. The hat has something to do with some idea of a hat in a marketplace, I think. Like visibility, uh, I've heard, like so that people can yeah. see them or something. Yeah, something to that effect. The cat, because alewives had cats to chase mice away from grain. And what am I missing? Uh, the cauldron. Cat. Cauldron from, of course, brewing. Right. Typically just from, from brewing. And then the other part of that is that these connections existed in the medieval period. And it, these connections existed because alewives were specifically targeted as witches. And then pan-European, like this was a pan-European thing, and that in Europe, alewives were specifically targeted as witches, and they were pushed out of brewing by witchcraft accusations and mass. <laughs> so the idea goes then that today that because of all those things, that's where we get our image for like sort of the fairy tale witch with her hat and broom and, and cat and all that. You have done a lot of work in the last few years to explain why that connection is not actually true. And I'll confess that until a few years ago, I was guilty of spreading that because it was such a you know a convenient, easy story, but those convenient, easy stories aren't always accurate. Can you share a little bit of why that's not true? Yeah. So, well, see, see, I understand because it, it sounds like it could be true, especially when, and I can talk about this in a bit, when we know that there's possibly some negative ideas of alewives in certain places. So, oh, well, this makes sense. Maybe this is true, but it's, it's, it's really not. I will run down um, really briefly why the pointy hat, the broom, and the cat don't come from, come from alewives. And I'm, 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 I'm just going to start with the fact that the, the modern witch stereotype doesn't really surface until the 18th century. And in fact, we see this first appearing in children's books. There's a couple of really good examples on my blog. There's a chat books of the 18th century by John Ashton. It's a fascinating book and there's all different woodcuts of witches and, and things of that nature. So we really don't see that until the 18th century. And this is when the pointy hat comes into play. But this iconography of pointy-hatted witches is not the only or even most dominant uh, depictions for this era. And this is the early modern period, this 18th century into the modern period. So Goya, for example, Francisco de Goya, he depicted pointy hats a little bit differently. So he has Witches Flight, which is one of his paintings, and he has pointy hats on male witches, but there is, of course, no brim. Prior to the introduction and widespread use of the pointed hat, witches were depicted naked or bareheaded or in historically or contextually accurate garb. They were, they were depicted like everyday people, which maybe is why they were so scary, because they could have been anyone, right? And just a side note that our idea of the witch hunts being, you know, terrors across Europe, this, this firstly didn't happen until really the early modern period. While we do see witch trials, for example, there's one in Ireland around 1324, primarily they're a later phenomenon. And... They didn't happen 
across Europe in the same way. So Scotland in particular had a lot of witch trials, way more than say Ireland, which didn't really, they had a couple of them, but never really picked it up like other places. And there's a lot of arguments as to why that is. But where did the pointy hat come from? The reality is there is an academic consensus. So there's a lot of different theories. Some say it might be an exaggerated dunce's cap. Some say it might have come from medieval henins. And henin kind of kind of think a little, it's a cone-shaped headdress. You know when you kind of imagine the fairy tale princess with the cone-shaped mm-hmm. headdress and sort of like the trailing piece sure. of fabric off? Yeah, so kind of that. It might be drawing from classical depictions of the goddess Diana, who was, of course, associated with witchcraft. There's two more plausible explanations. One comes from Peter Burke. Um, And this is in his book, Eyewitnessing History, the Use of Images as Historical Evidence. He argued that the witch's hat, and indeed the modern perception of the witch with a pointy hooked nose, all stem from virulent anti-Semitism. And he described the portrayal of the witch as absorbing and amalgamating with contemporary depictions of Jewish people. And he cited, for example, a decree in Hungary from 1421 that declared that all who are arrested for sorcery must wear tall pointed hats. And in early modern Spain, heretics were also required to wear similar garb. And he referred to this as the visual code expressive of subhumanity. The other one is that it came from everyday hats. So there are two kinds of hats from the 16th and 17th century that noble or wealthy European women wore, uh, but also men, uh, the Capotian and the Phrygian hats. And if you Google them, and they look very similar to the modern witch's hat, if not almost identical. So black with a brim, conical, sometimes evened out flat at the top, but other times pointy, really basically the same hat. So this hat was associated with Puritan costume and the years leading up to the English Civil War and the age of the Commonwealth. It could possibly come from this hat. Real quick, just to clarify dates for listeners, uh, you said that these depictions of witches and the witch trials didn't start until late 17th, early 18th century? Yeah, so so really, really, when we're talking about witch trials and sort of that the witch craze or the witch hunt, that kind of thing, we're talking about the early modern period. The early modern period starts about 1500 and beyond. Okay. So we're talking about 1500 and up. And so when we're talking about alewives, as we understand them historically, what time period are we looking at for the the main segment of that see that's quite complicated as well typically the myth is talking about english alewives and using that data and then extrapolating it out for the rest of europe which just doesn't work so we're talking about alewives and the idea that women somehow dominated the industry or there were more women than men in in ale brewing is more of a medieval phenomenon so judith bennett argued for example that in the early medieval periods and high medieval periods that brewing was a small cottage industry. And then a lot of the brewers were women or couples. So a husband and wife, but the wife might've done the actual brewing, those kinds of things. Um, There's quite a few historians of medieval England who have, who've really talked about this in some depth and that gradually women were pushed out of brewing. Now, as someone who's writing the book about Ireland, I can tell you that it's different here. And that is both within the English colonial, spaces 
as well as the Irish spaces. And I can assure you that it's different in other places in Europe. I think part of the problem is with the myth is that people take things that perhaps happen in England or small contexts and then it just is extrapolated out to the rest of Europe and it just doesn't work that way. Uh, so is it accurate to say when we're looking in general at at England, Ireland, other places in Europe, is it accurate to say that women were the primary brewers for a period of time or is that just a case by case basis? It really depends. So so I think in 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 Ireland, we can say that certainly in some places time periods in some places, absolutely women were the primary brewers. We have a lot of legal codes that are directed towards women and not men. And it's very clear about the the language that they use. We also see that in, in literary sources and things, but we do know that men were also brewing. For example, we have guild roles with two men listed as brewers. So it becomes a thing of men were probably also brewing, but it was probably more so women in Ireland, I think. And I do argue that and definitely in certain time periods and places. And I think Bennett has argued for that as well in England, um, certainly before and particularly before the Black Death. And then in the aftermath of the Black Death, women gradually were pushed out for a variety of reasons in England. I highly recommend Judith Bennett's book on on that. Looking back then at the women gradually being pushed out of the brewing industry, as you said, one of the things I've read is that one of the tools to do that was accusations of witchcraft. Is there truth to that? If there isn't, where did that develop? So this is one of the, this is this is the part of the myth that's really complicated. Whereas I can t- safely tell you that there's no link between the modern witch stereotype and medieval alewives. The the second part of this is a little more complicated. I can tell you no in Ireland, but in England it's a like I said it's it's a little bit more complex. I'm going to talk about Judith Bennett again. Go for it. (laughs) Judith Bennett and another scholar, Hester, have argued that the groups of people who are generally accused of witchcraft overlap with those who were alewives in England. That is possibly poor, single, widowed, these sorts of things. So even determining if alewives were accused of witches because they were alewives is incredibly difficult because of the overlap. Now, there was a study by Alan McFarlane. He conducted a study of accused witches based on the Assize records from Essex, dating between 1560 and 1680. And he found that one woman had a husband who was listed as a beer brewer. One. But what we know is that they might have just brewed together and he's listed as the the brewer, or that the other women's positions just were overlooked or ignored. This evidence is really hard to work with uh, because, again, it only lists the husband's occupations if they're married. So we don't know. We we really don't know. And we don't know if other accused women of Essex were also brewing in some capacity. But McFarlane argued that witches tended to be poorer than their alleged victims. So if someone was making an accusation, they, you know, they punched down and not up. And this reflects with you know, arguments by Hester and Bennett um, that women who were accused of witchcraft tended to be the most vulnerable in the economy, laboring women, widowed, possibly older and poor, and those in competition with men for trade and money. And again, I'm only talking about England. So in early modern England, we saw a rapid population increase, and this was coupled with a female majority 
and a decreasing means of livelihood for women. So this ends up with what we call the feminization of poverty. So a lot of impoverished women. And this is reflected in the status of female brewers. And so Bennett in particular argued that this increasing nationalization of brewing trade led to new financial um, arrangements or balances between spouses. And unmarried women were particularly negatively effective because they were less able to compete with couples. So those women were who were still able to compete, like, like widows, were a threat to this new balance and male dominance in the trade. So some scholars have argued that they might have been targets for witchcraft accusations. But we have no proof of this. There's no primary source. There's no smoking gun. There's nothing that says this. It's just given these parameters, it is possible that women who were alewives if they were in competition with men, might have been accused of this in order to remove the competition because we know this was something that men did. So, for example, in 1413, Christine Colmere's business was totally destroyed when Simon Daniel told all her neighbors that she had leprosy. And another example in 1641, with an unnamed widow brewing at the Ludlow Castle garrison, she found her entire trade destroyed when a male competitor spread false rumors about her and her business. But again, these are two examples, and these are examples that Bennett found, and we don't have any direct accusations. So if I were to answer this question, what I would say is it's absolutely not a pan-European thing. It might have been deployed in one or two instances in England, but it certainly wasn't a en masse reason why alewives were removed or pushed out of the brewing industry to some degree. And it certainly wasn't widespread. If it happened, it might have happened a few times, but we don't have any evidence for that. But it is possible. But I don't think that's the case in other places. And it certainly wasn't the case in Ireland. Given the fact that there is no historical connection, as you've said, between alewives and our modern witch iconography, how did this idea start in the 20th century? Why did this become just the accepted history that this is where this iconography came from? Accepted popular history. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. The Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my level two exam many years ago. I wish the level three had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. 
unfortunately, it's one of those things where I feel like people think that it should it sounds like it should be true. And so then it's repeated and repeated and repeated. Citing a lot of the the journal articles that I've looked at, instead of citing primary sources, they're just citing another journal article. And so on and on and on and on it goes. Instead of, you know, going back to primary source data to actually have some grounds for the argument. And that's, that's really unfortunate. I also think because there's this really in England, negative strand of ideology about alewives. So there was a lot of anxiety about alewives cheating their customers. And of course, they probably did, not intentionally all the time, but the government in England, as well as in the English colonies, set down laws about serving sizes and it had to be this specific size when they were serving it out. But if you're a poor woman, you might not have access to these specific sizes. So you might be inadvertently cheating your customer. Now, Bennett has found some examples of of women in England very much deliberately probably cheating their customers because humans are going to human. And in Ireland, it's the same situation. So there is that anxiety about alewives cheating, but there's also anxiety about millers and bakers, all people in sort of like the food trade cheating. There's just this general anxiety. So it's not limited to women, but with women, you get that cheating anxiety along with really, really horrific misogyny. And it becomes this just like perfect storm of, of hatred. And we also have poems like uh, John Skelton um, in 1517, you wrote the tonning of Eleanor Rumming. And of course, you know, Eleanor is depicted completely horrifically. And she might, you know, he says that she might be relation, you know, a sibling to the devil and that she keeps the company of witches. So you can kind of see this, oh, well, she keeps the company of witches. Okay, maybe, maybe that, you know, maybe that's the link. And it's like, well, there might be this idea of alewives being negative or bad. But again, the modern stereotype doesn't come from sort of garb. And you can even see that by the way he describes her and how she's dressed and and these sorts of things. But she does probably do a spell in his poem. He does talk about her kind of doing a spell, which is quite interesting. Oh, where is it? Oh, I have it here. In fact, she blended hen's droppings with ale to create a tonic. And the words are, when I began to brew and I have found it to be true, drink now while it is new and ye may it brook and shall make you look younger than ye be two years or three for ye may prove it by me. So we do kind of have those sort of sneaky little sly references. So we can kind of see, okay, maybe there is this association and in top this all off, we have um, images in churches or paintings of alewives being carted off to hell with a demon, quite happily, or most of them, just happily along with her, you know, big mug of ale. So there is some idea that there could be this association. But again, the same thing is associated with bakers and millers and all of these people. In fact, in Ireland, I was just actually translating a middle a middle English poem, um, probably from Kildare in Ireland from about the 1330s, and it 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 has a similar ideology about oh, Brewsters beware of the of the cucking stool, which is the dunking stool, but but also they're included with tailors, skinners, 
merchants who are all warned of all of their things. Bakers are warned of the pillory. So there is, it's not limited to alewives. So with those kind of convenient connections that have just been pulled out, do you see any similar modern mythologies developing in other fields? Like, have you heard of outside of brewing? I mean, given the fact that this happened with bakers, have you seen anything among the baking community of this being a historical connection or anything like that? I haven't, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen any bakers or, you know, indie bread makers or small bread makers talking about um, ending up in the pillory. Or anything like that, which is interesting because you, I mean, those two in particular go on John Lydgate's poem, um, putting thieving millers and bakers in the pillory. And in fact, he said that they should build their guild chapel under the pillory as so many members would end up there at some point anyway. So, you know, (laughs) it just seems to have really stuck with, with brewing. (laughs) What do you think that is? Like, what is the romance there that you think has led to that connection? Well, I think part of it is women sort of reclaiming their space within beer and craft beer. I think, and not just women, I think it's everyone trying to make craft beer more diverse and inclusive, which it needs to be. And so a big strand I see is women reclaiming their space in brewing. And it's like, okay, well, maybe in some European cultures, but you, you, you know that in other places in the world, women never lost their place. They've been continuing to brew. They've been brewing for millennia and they haven't stopped. So there's a problem with medieval history, then it becomes very Eurocentric. And so people assume, but we're talking about medieval alewives, we're talking about them, of course, we're talking about European alewives. But we know, for example, in Peru, in the same time period, women were brewing and there's these massive breweries. So it becomes a bit problematic when people talk about it in that, in that strand. That said, I think it's really, really important that we are having this thrust towards diversity and inclusion. But we need to be careful that we're telling the right stories and the true stories when we're doing that. So it's really exciting, I think, for people to be to 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 learn about this history about women and brewing in in medieval Europe and medieval England. And wow, look what they were doing. So I'm you know, this is this tradition. I'm actually, you know, part of this broader, bigger story. You know, people want to be part of the story. But I think it's important that we're telling the right story and the the story that's based on primary source information and the one that we can support. Setting aside those uh, historical components, just looking at the modern day, are there connections you're aware of uh, today between brewing beer and witchcraft or, or related spiritual practices? Absolutely. There's a couple of really good books actually about magical cocktails. Of course, Witchcraft, modern witchcraft is a practice. It's not a religion. So the witchcraft is, is a series of practices. It's, um, it's something that you do. So you can be a Christian witch, a Buddhist witch, you can be an atheist witch, you can be an agnostic witch, you, you know, it's the practice. And then of course, there's Wicca, which is a religion. But throughout most of these practices, there are magical correspondences with certain herbs or colors, um, times of the day. So you could add certain herbs to your to your brew to make it a certain uh, a certain type of potion or part of a certain type of spell. So certain waters. So you can make moon water, water that you put out um, during different phases of the moon, and that can give charge the water in different ways. And so you could use that as part of your brewing. And there's all different kinds of you can storm water, all sorts of different things. So absolutely, there's ways in which you can incorporate your practice of witchcraft into into brewing. And I believe I read actually that 
that there was a woman or a, a group of women who made a, a beer by use of a spell and and use it as part of a part of a spell. So it's very much something that would lend itself to that. There's an entire um, sort of subsection of witchcraft, um, kitchen witchcraft, green witchcraft, which really focuses on food and drink and that kind of those kind of practices. And you could absolutely use beer as part of your practice and something like that. Beth Demon had a very good article in Good Beer Hunting last year about some small commercial craft breweries that had incorporated some of those practices. It was very compelling. That That's who I was thinking about. Sorry, Beth, I completely forgot. <laughs> but the, yes, yes, it was Beth Demon's article, which was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. So is there anything else related to witchcraft and brewing that you think would be worthwhile for our listeners to know about? Well, I think we need to, and, I, and this is, I'm writing about this too. Once I finish this book, it's my next book about brewing and magic, because those things go together very well, have always gone together. There is something magical, I suppose, that captures our imagination when we brew, particularly before we knew what yeast was and what it did. There's this idea of the, you know, using the gods or invoking the gods as part of your magical practice. And beer wasn't just, you know, or ale, I should say, in the early periods. It wasn't just limited to perhaps our stereotypical idea of magic practice, which is pagan religions or pagan people. But the the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, very much used it as part of their rituals. In Ireland, for example, St. Bridget brewed miraculous beer ale, because we're talking about unhopped beer, for her Easter celebrations. And she made miraculous ale that cured her foster mother in these tales. So ale as magic or as a medium for magic is something that sort of comes across cultures. And we see that all over the world and now and historically. And so there is that magic in brewing that I think really it's certainly captured my my imagination. And I think when we see, even though, you know, it's a myth and it's not true, but the interest in the myth, I think we really could see interest in this idea, this link, this appeal of, of brewing with magic. Yeah, for sure. I'll look forward to that book. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> so uh, as the seasons are changing, what are some of your favorite fall beers that you're enjoying right now, Christina? Well, it, it has to be pumpkin ale. It's it's just, it's pumpkin. It's pumpkin ale. It's always pumpkin ale for me. There's a brewery in Ireland called Trouble Brewing. They have been making a pumpkin ale for a very long time and they grow their own pumpkins. So they do everything from the start to the finish and it's 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 glorious. It's so good. It's it's a really, really great pumpkin beer. Is that beer. spiced too? Is that like pumpkin spice? Yes, yes. But it's it's more of, sometimes it changes because they have different brewers. And so the different brewers kind of put their own spin on it. So sometimes it's a little bit more on the spicy side and sometimes it's more of like the gourd sort of yammy, that kind of a flavor, which is really interesting too. But we look forward to it Every year, it is my favorite part of fall. Now, there are some other brewers in Ireland who started making some as well, and that's also excellent. I want to collect them all. I'll give all of the pumpkin beer, please. Thank you. But yeah, it's great. <laughs> that's great. Do you get any American craft beer in Ireland that you're able to try? Absolutely. We we get quite a few, actually, depending, on, but they sell out really fast. So we tend to, we have some consistently here. We have Sierra Nevada. We used to have Victory, but I haven't seen it for a while. 
We have a couple that come in and out. A lot of the seasonals we'll get, but sometimes, like, as I said, it's really like hit or miss and it's like, okay, we have a palette. And once it's gone, it's gone. So it really, it really sort of depends. Do you have any particular traditions that you like to uh, put around your, your beer drinking in the fall? Any experiences that you always make sure to have? Well, it always has to involve carving a pumpkin, right? Which probably mm-hmm. isn't a thing that should go with with <laughs> drinking. So there's definitely a night where we get our pumpkins and we carve our pumpkins and we roast the seeds and yeah, and it's a whole like lovely night. Um, and then of course, actually Halloween and Samhain celebrations involve lots of drink because drinking is a really important part of uh, those celebrations, particularly cider. Though pumpkin beer is also a really good one for that time of year. So how can people find you online? You're, I know you've got your, uh, your website and, and some other things going on. Uh, share with us that and the, the podcasts and the information about your forthcoming book. Yeah. So I'm at Brachiatrix, B-R-A-C-I-A-T-R-I-X, um, which is the Latin for female brewer on that's Insta, Twitter. And that's also the name of my website. I am also on Beer Ladies podcast which is on anywhere you can get your podcasts and also on YouTube. And then my book is called Filthy Queens, The History of Beer in Ireland. And I am hoping to be done this year and then it should be published sometime next year. But uh, COVID put me back a bit because all the libraries here, of course, have been closed for a while. So we shall see. History is pretty much always more complex than we realize, and we can all be guilty of sharing versions of the past that are oversimplified at best and outright inaccurate at worst. Reality is sometimes less romantic than the tall tales we invent, but it's all the richer for its nuance and complexity. I look forward to reading Christina's forthcoming book, Filthy Queens, about the history of brewing in Ireland, and for the book that follows about the connections between brewing and magic. Be sure to check out the link to Christina's work in the show notes, as well as the excellent Beer Ladies podcast. My fridge is already stocked with pumpkin beers, and one day soon we'll head out to the pumpkin patch to pick out pumpkins for carving and baking. Our tradition in recent years has been to carve our pumpkins outside around a campfire while drinking pumpkin beer, and I can't wait to do that in a few weeks. Whatever magic you believe in, I hope you find some of it this fall with friends and family around you and something good in your glass. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool. Bean to Barstool.